I'm Sam. I'm David. And this is Trafe. Welcome back to Trafe, uh, the only Jewish podcast to be at the vanguard of the war on Christmas for five years straight. I think that might be a little generous, but I am excited about this time of year. Yeah, the war on Christmas has officially begun. <laughs> I think this is our year. Uh, I appreciate your optimism, David. Do you have any plans for this war on Christmas? Uh, not that we should talk about here. Very good security culture, David. Thanks. <laughs> okay, but there is something that we can talk about on the show, um, and it is extending a tremendous thank you to people who have supported our funding drive. You're helping us make the podcast and support all the work that goes into the podcast. So thank you so much for doing that. Yeah, I mean, we made a page for people to support the show who want to about two years ago now, and uh, we shared it online this week for the first time, I think, since we started it. And just seconding a huge thanks to everybody who's been supporting the show. And on that note, if you know any rich leftists who want to support our program and can <laughs> support our program, it would be great to just get a lump sum, no strings attached. That would be wonderful. What, a, what an opportunity. <laughs> and to be honest, David, it feels like in the last couple of weeks, we've gotten to know our listeners a little bit better than we have in the past. Uh, what do you mean? Well, there is a strong bonding that is happening now around seltzer carbonated water. Oh, all those emails you got about <laughs> seltzer. Sam mentioned a seltzer that he was using. We got, I think, 20 emails of people who wanted to know. It was wild. I think it's amazing how the Jewish left and seltzer are so intertwined. But leaving the seltzer to the side, what do we do on this podcast? Uh, so we do a lot of things, but I think the main one is that we talk about radical politics. And for the last couple months, we've been following a certain trajectory, have we not? Yes. So this episode is part of our series of episodes exploring the history and unfortunate present realities of fascism and far-right movements. And on this episode, we're going to look at how colonialism relates to fascism. Yeah, we, we wanted to explore an aspect of fascism that a lot of people write about as colonialism turned inward, where essentially the society that's carrying out colonialism around the world has that violence filtered back into the host society. Yeah, and so we chatted with two academics who cover kind of different facets of this phenomenon. The first was Christian Davis, who is a professor and wrote a book called Colonialism, Antisemitism, and Germans of Jewish Descent in Imperial Germany. Yeah, we talked with Christian about Germany's colonial invasion of Africa, and specifically its genocide in Namibia, and the ways that this contributed to the rise of the Nazis and eventually the Holocaust. And... For our second interview, we chatted with Roland Kashina Robinson, who's also known as Anamaki. He runs the Anguahone Rising blog, and he's the author of the essay, Fascism and Anti-Fascism, A Decolonial Perspective. Yeah, we want to talk to Roland to get a better idea of how to understand fascism here, where settler colonialism and genocide is so much part of the fabric of the society, and also what the threat of growing far-right politics means for indigenous people. And so to jump straight into these interviews, this is your episode of Trafe for the second of Kislev 5780. <laughs> Uh, 
All right. Well, my name is Christian Davis, and I teach modern European and world history at James Madison University in Virginia. I've been teaching at JMU for about nine years, and I'm very much interested in issues of anti-Semitism, race relations, uh, racial prejudice, and also colonialism. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Um, We wanted to talk to you about your book, uh, but before we get into the book, you know, this is just such a specific area of study. Um, And I was curious how Uh you uh, first came into it. Well, it really dates back to my days as a graduate student when I was at Rutgers University. I became quite interested in the question of the origins of anti-Semitism and racial prejudice in modern Europe. And also I became interested in the stories of European colonial expansion, the creation of racial states abroad in German Africa and other parts of the world. And the question that I asked myself was whether or not these two historical developments were interrelated. And so that became the basis of the study, which then I expanded in later years into the book. And before we go any further here, can you give our listeners a sense, maybe a short sense, Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, of the story of German colonialism in Africa? Because I think it's one that maybe takes a backseat to French, British, or even Portuguese and Spanish. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, I think probably a lot of people don't even know that Germany did have a very large colonial empire, and it was one of the major colonizing powers during the late 19th and early 20th centuries. So Germany, in fact, acquired and governed what became the fourth largest colonial empire in the world, only behind the British, the French, and the Dutch. But one of the reasons why most people are probably not aware that Germany was such a large power is because their empire only lasted from about 1884 to 1919, when Germany was stripped of its overseas colonial possessions as a result of losing the First World War. But Germany did, for a short period of time, about 34 years, acquire a large colonial empire. And it was an empire that was actually quite diverse. Uh, The Germans acquired a small territory on the coast of China. Uh, They came to control part of New Guinea and Samoa and islands in the South Pacific near Australia. But the overwhelming bulk of the German overseas empire was actually located in Africa, in four large African colonies, which at the time were known as German East Africa, German Southwest Africa, Togo, and Cameroon. And this colonial empire altogether encompassed a landmass that was actually much larger than the territory of Germany back in Europe. In fact, uh, the largest of the German African colonies, German East Africa, was itself larger than Germany back in Europe. And it uh, governed millions of non-Germans, Africans in particular. And, you know, all this invasion and and conquest had a large human cost uh, on the part of the indigenous populations, including the Herero and Nama genocide uh, that the Germans carried out in 1904 in in Namibia. You know, for listeners who haven't heard of this before, can you maybe give people a bit of an understanding of what occurred? Sure, sure. The Germans were extremely brutal colonial masters. And you had a number of large uprisings, really as a reaction to German brutality. And the most famous uprising, and the one which resulted in the first genocide of the 20th century, occurred in German Southwest Africa. German Southwest Africa was a very large colony. It had a significant indigenous population, probably about 200,000 people when the Germans arrived in the 1880s. 
the two major groups were the Herero and the Nama. And the German colonial authorities pursued the deliberate policy of impoverishing the indigenous inhabitants. The policy was really designed to strip the Herero and the Nama, both of their land and of their possessions and of their cattle in particular, in order to impoverish the people so that they would be dependent for their livelihoods upon selling their labor services to the German state and to the German white settlers in German Southwest Africa. And this had a really devastating effect upon the Herero people. And so by 1904, the Herero people were really facing an existential threat. And so they rose up against the Germans, against the settlers and the representatives of the German government in the colony. And Germany responded with terrific force during this German campaign to suppress the Herero people. Uh, one German commander, General von Trotha, pursued a deliberate policy of annihilation, of genocide, directed not only against the Herero men who were doing the fighting, but also against Herero women and children. And as a result of this genocidal suppression of the Herero uprising, the Herero people were almost, not completely, but almost wiped out. We uh, estimate that approximately 60 to 80 percent of the Herero population died as a result of this genocidal policy and the Germans instituted what really can be seen as the first totalitarian state in 20th century world history. They instituted severe policies to ensure that the Herero and the Nama would never be able to rise up again. The German government seized the remaining land and cattle of the rebelling groups. Black Africans in the colony were forced to carry passes. Any white man had the ability to stop someone and demand their pass. Their passes had to show that they were employed. Herero and Nama were prohibited after the collapse of the rebellion from living together in groups of more than 10 families. Uh, the German plantation owners were liberated to use corporal punishment upon Herero and Nama laborers. So the result was uh, devastating for the indigenous peoples of German Southwest Africa. Uh, wow. I've read about this before, but it's, it's still really intense to, to hear you describe it that way. Yeah. And it really shocked me to learn that the phrase, I think it's pronounced Endlosung. The Endlosung, yes. Yeah. Uh, or, or the final solution was actually first written in 1904, <clears throat> you know, not in reference to what the Nazis eventually called the Jewish question, but to what <clears throat> the Germans were calling the native question. And that same year was also the first time the Germans used concentration camps in Africa. And can you maybe talk a bit about how these ideas developed? Yes. So some of the concepts that the National Socialists use and some of the ideas that motivated them did seem to have precedence in the German colonial period. So, for example, the use of concentration camps to house the Herero and the Nama people, of course, seems to foreshadow the use of concentration camps in 1930s and 1940s. The concentration camps in German Southwest Africa were not just places to hold the Herero and the Nama, but they were also sites of mass death. Conditions were so horrific in these camps that the death rate on average was about 40 percent. 
in some of the camps, like the notorious camp on Shark Island off the coast of German Southwest Africa, about 70% of the people who were imprisoned in those camps died of malnourishment and maltreatment, and the government were fully aware of this. So there's essentially foreshadowing in German Southwest Africa of some of the policies that national socialists carry out the use of concentration camps as really a method to annihilate a population of people purposefully through malnourishment and maltreatment. But one of the criticisms that has been made of that idea is the reality that when you're talking about the Holocaust, the German policies were motivated above all by a genocidal logic, and that that was inherent to the project, and in fact, that is what the Holocaust was all about. It was all about the complete annihilation and removal of the Jewish population of Europe, whereas genocides that took place in colonial contexts, they were not the purpose of European and German colonizing efforts. However, in the early 1900s, you did in fact have colonial propagandists, thinkers about colonialism, pro-colonial ideologues talking about genocide. And the term that was used by these pro-colonialists in the early 20th century was the term Endkampf, which means final war. Now, of course, the National Socialists had their own idea of an Endkampf, a racial struggle that would result in the annihilation of one race and the elevation of another. But this idea of Endkampf was discussed in German circles as early as 1904, where some German colonial thinkers and writers were speaking actively about a future final battle between blacks and whites. Huh. So were there other parts of the Nazis' ideology that, that came from this period? So um, one of the terms that the National Socialists used quite a bit was this idea of Lebensraum, this idea of living space, uh, this notion that the National Socialists and the Germans and the Aryan people needed to acquire more living space in Central Eastern and Eastern Europe in order to survive as a people, as a race. And this idea, this term, in fact, Lebensraum, which was so central to National Socialist ideology, it did have its origins in connection with German colonialism. While Germany was actively conquering and colonizing and moving into foreign territories abroad, it helped really to provide a scientific justification for what the Germans were actually doing in places like Africa for expanding and conquering and settling, moving into new territories. And that same idea uh, heavily influenced the National Socialists later on and became part of the National Socialist imperialist ideology. But they applied it not in places like Africa, they applied it in places like Central Eastern Europe and Eastern Europe. So in Sub-Saharan Africa, in the German colonies, there are concentration camps there's a notion of, of a final solution, of living space, and this is almost 40 years before the Holocaust. Um, can you talk about some of the ways or, or, or the practical examples of how this colonial violence filtered back into Europe? How did it change German culture and politics? How did these ideas and these actions impact the national discourse? Well, in the main, I think the 
German experiences in Africa, but also in other colonial spaces, had the effect of mainstreaming certain ideas for the German public, in particular the idea of race, uh, the idea that humanity is divided up into different groups defined by meaningful biological differences, that some groups are superior and other groups are inferior, and it's biological differences that determine the places of different groups on a racial hierarchy, uh, the idea of race war, the idea of living and dying races, uh, all of these notions in the late 19th century and the early 20th century were controversial, but they became increasingly mainstreamed into the German public as the German colonies became interwoven in various ways into daily life, even among people who had no personal contact with the reality of German colonialism. As the colonies were being debated by German politicians, as they were being discussed in the German parliament, as they were being written about in German magazines and German newspapers, as German libraries were being filled with the memoirs of soldiers who fought in the Herero and Nama uprisings. In all of these various ways, uh, Germans became exposed to certain ideas that probably would have remained very much on the fringes of German society. And the mainstreaming of these ideas provides sort of the ideological backdrop for national socialism and for certain national socialist policies that come to fruition later on, beginning in the late 1930s. So you wrote in the book that this also helped the rise of, of modern anti-Semitism in Germany. How does this all relate to anti-Semitism? So the Jews of Europe had experienced severe prejudice and discrimination for you know, many hundreds of years. But until the 19th century, the Jews of Europe tended to be seen by their Christian neighbors and by the people around them outside their community as members of a religious group. But in the 19th century, you have the rise of a new pseudoscience of race. You have the rise of scientific racism. And these ideas about race, they started to be applied towards Jews by anti-Semites. A number of the new anti-Semitic political parties that formed in the late 19th century were openly racist. They espoused not religious anti-Semitism, but racial anti-Semitism. They argued that the Jews in Germany and Jews in general represented a race apart from so-called Aryan Germans. And these anti-Semitic political parties, almost all of them were extremely supportive of the idea of German colonialism. They believed that Germany would benefit economically, but there was an additional reason, and that had to do with their racist ideology. They saw a happy confirmation in what was going on in German Africa of their own belief in the existence of superior and inferior races and the necessity to create legal systems and policies to codify the racial hierarchy in law. The creation of so-called native law policies prohibiting interracial marriages in the German colonies is something that German anti-Semites were paying a lot of attention to back in Germany and argued that what was happening in the colony should in fact be imposed in Germany vis-a-vis -vis Jews. 
and that did end up happening in Germany with the creation of the Nuremberg Laws under the Nazis. Uh, how closely did the Nuremberg Laws resemble the racist legal structure the Germans used in Africa? Well, in some ways, it was quite similar. The Third Reich in the 1930s stripped Jews of their citizenship rights and subjected them to rules and regulations and punishments that other Germans were exempt from. And the Third Reich, of course, also instituted a system of segregation. And this, in fact, closely resembled what happened in the German colonies uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Non-white indigenous colonial subjects in German Africa were denied the constitutional protections enjoyed by white German citizens. One of the facts that really leaps out is that in the German colonies, uh, interracial marriage was prohibited in the early 1900s. And of course, interfaith marriages were prohibited through National Socialists who operated according to the idea that Jews were in fact a race apart. But you also had the creation of something known as native law. So these were rules and regulations that were devised by German colonial officials on the ground, which subjected indigenous colonial subjects to special rules and punishments that, of course, white German citizens were not subjected to. And you can actually see in the anti-Semitic newspapers and magazines anti-Semitic writers and politicians and journalists talking about passage of so-called anti-miscegenation laws in a very admiring way and implying sometimes quite explicitly that the same sort of thing needed to happen at home in Germany vis-a-vis Jews. So there were strong uh, similarities. Yeah, I I found it interesting uh, reading the book because you wrote about how you know, while German colonialism had this long-term impact of strengthening German anti-Semitism, that in the short term essentially offered a way to assimilate more deeply into German society. How widespread would you say Jewish involvement in colonialism was at that time? Well, the answer is that we don't actually know, and that study has not been done yet. But what we can say is that a number of Germans of Jewish descent were remarkably active and prominent in the history of German colonialism. The German colonies were only around for about 34 years, but for a fairly substantial part of that time, men of Jewish descent were in fact heading Germany's colonial policies. There were some Jewish soldiers who were involved in the German suppression of the Herero uprising. And on top of this, there was a small Jewish community of settlers in German Southwest Africa. Uh, In addition, German Zionists in Germany were in fact quite interested in what was going on in German colonies, and they were very aware of what was happening, and they wrote about and talked about German colonial expansion approvingly. what, What exactly was the nature of the writing on that? Well, German Zionists were quite interested in the idea of colonization, of course. Uh, Zionists who argued that Jews needed to find a home outside of Europe were quite interested in seeing how Europeans during the age of imperialism were conquering and colonizing spaces abroad. And so some German Zionists were actually part of the German colonial society, which was the most important pro-colonial organization in Germany during the Kaiserreich. 
I want to talk just a bit more about this legacy of Jewish involvement in, in German colonialism and in genocide. Uh, some people think that these actors deserve a, a, a special condemnation for their role. Do you think that's appropriate here? I think the answer really has to be no, because to answer yes means holding German Jews and Germans of Jewish descent to a different standard and to a higher standard than their non-Jewish German compatriots uh, in terms of an ability to perceive the inherent injustice of colonialism and also an ability to anticipate the future of Europe. And that, of course, wouldn't be fair. So I think the answer is no. But there's a caveat, and, and the caveat, of course, is that it's disconcerting uh, whenever you see a member of a persecuted minority group participate in or, or actually lead discriminatory and racist policies against other minorities. You know, think, for example, and we're going to bring Trump into this finally. You know, he had to come up at some point. Think of Stephen Miller, right, in the White House, the top advisor to Trump, who is probably more responsible than anyone else uh, for crafting Donald Trump's anti-immigrant policies. Stephen Miller is Jewish. He comes from a strong Jewish background, and, and seeing that uh, is especially distressing. Definitely. Uh, and, and I think that one of, of many factors that enables the Stephen Millers or, or the Jared Kushners of the world uh, is looking away from these histories. And in looking back at this history, something I've been thinking through is, you know, the British had concentration camps in Africa, too, and Belgium killed 10 million people in the Congo. So why, why do you think those countries didn't see similar regimes crop up to the Nazis or, or similar domestic atrocities to the Holocaust? Right. The most important difference between the German experiences of colonialism and the experiences of other European powers, Britain and France in particular, is the fact that the German colonial experience ended quite suddenly and quite abruptly. The Germans were stripped of their colonies all at once, quite suddenly in 1919, as a result of losing the First World War. And so the German pro-colonial public really had a sense of injustice as a result of this loss. And in the years immediately after the end of the First World War, France uses troops from French-controlled Africa to occupy part of the Rhineland from 1919 to 1924. You have tens of thousands of black troops under French command occupying an important part of Germany. And this was very significant because within a matter of just a few years, the Germans go from being white colonial masters, lording it over non-white colonial subjects in Africa and in other places, to having black African soldiers in the streets of German cities and towns representing an occupying power, giving commands, patrolling, Many Germans did, in fact, see this as a type of reverse colonization, which just added to the humiliation of the loss of the war and all the other stipulations of the Treaty of Versailles. So bringing things more into the present moment, um, unfortunately, we're having to grapple quite a bit with an upsurge of anti-Semitism and fascism today. 
And uh, I'm wondering what the main lessons are that you hope people take from your work. One is that the story of German Jews really needs to be fully integrated into the broader story of German history. Sometimes the story of German Jews and the history of German Jews is told separately from the broader story of German history. And I think that one of the things that my work shows is that these two things must be integrated. Uh, the second thing, the second lesson that I think comes out of my work is the need to contextualize modern anti-Semitism, the need to recognize that modern anti-Semitism in Central Europe and Germany in particular, the rise of anti-Semitic political parties in the late 19th century takes place in the context of colonial empire building and the creation of racial states abroad, which means that anti-Semitism is contextual, far from being eternal and unchanging. Anti-Semitism is and always has been very much shaped by what's going on around it. Those are, from my standpoint, some of the most important takeaways from the research that I've done. Well, Christian, we, we both learned a lot reading the book. Um, Thanks so much for coming on the show and talking to us about it. Well, well, I really enjoyed this conversation, and I appreciate you uh, letting me on. This is Jonah Elaine Daniel calling from the Narrowbridge Candles Chandlery on southern Pomo land, North Sonoma County, California. Narrowbridge Candles is a Jewish ritual candle making project in support of the full Palestinian call for boycott, divestment and sanctions and donating a portion of sales to movements and organizations supporting Palestinian self-determination and U.S. based struggles for indigenous sovereignty and racial justice. Narrowbridge Candles was spared from fire, California wildfires this season, and we're working hard making beeswax, Hanukkah candles, and filling winter ritual boxes. We also have new fabulous ceramic Judaica this year, made by David Roswell. We have a Havdalah ritual kit and gorgeous Hanukkiahs. If you're in Canada, I'd recommend placing your order today and we will get things out to you as fast as we can. If you're in the U.S., you have a little more time, but ordering as soon as possible is helpful. You can place your orders on the website, narrowbridgecandles.org slash Hanukkah, H-A-N-U-K-K-A-H. Thanks so much. My name is uh, Roland Kashina Robinson. A lot of people who know me through my writings or through speaking events in Southern Ontario over the years might know me by my other name, Anamaki, which is my Menominee name because I'm a member of the Menominee Nation of Wisconsin. We're a native community in the United States. I've been involved in left-wing and decolonial politics of some variant or another since I was in high school. Um, I currently live 
in the Gadu Nagana territory. Uh, sometimes that's translated into English as the dish with one spoon territory. It's the traditional territory of the Adirondrin people, the Anishinaabe, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wyandot. And specifically, I live in Kitchener-Waterloo as part of that territory. Uh, well, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's great to be talking to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we wanted to talk to you about your essay, Fascism and Anti-Fascism, A Decolonial Perspective. Both of us read it a few years ago and, and really appreciated it. And in the last few months, we found ourselves talking about it a little bit more. Yeah. You know, we've sort of been exploring the part of fascism that is colonialism or imperialism overseas turned inward. And it just left us with a lot of questions about our context here. What do you think it means to talk about fascism here in, in a way that's different from in Europe? You know, when you think of this idea of fascism as imperialist violence making its return to the motherland, you kind of drop these images of, you know, what the Germans did in Namibia and Southwest Africa, right? And that's over there. And then the violence and the techniques of violence come home. But in a settler colony like the United States or Canada, the home is always already the site of the violence. It's not so much that the violence is coming home. The, the violence has always been here. So America and Canada were born out of the frontier and out of genocidal violence. Germany, Britain, France, Italy, etc. were not. Of course, there were many colonial genocides, but you can speak in, you know, hypothetically of England or Germany or Italy without the necessity of genocide or enslavement. Perhaps they wouldn't be the uh, top global capitalist powerhouses that they became because of colonialism and because of genocide. But you cannot separate the question of America and Canada from the question of genocide. So the way I sometimes think about it is it's maybe not so much a return from violence that was visited on other people coming home, but violences that the settlers visited upon other people internally within their borders, like indigenous people or black people, is now being repurposed to dominate them through the emergence of various strands of far-rightist thought. Maybe sometimes it's at queer people, sometimes it's at women, sometimes it's at non-white people. I think that's the difference is for the Germans, for the English, etc., where they were off in the colony, whereas in America, it was next door. But also, it's a question of the basis of the society, right? The basis of American and Canadian society is genocide and is enslavement. Uh, something that you've spoken about that I found really interesting was the idea of fascism never quite having the same popular hold here in the way that it did in Europe. Can you talk a bit about that? Why, why do you think that is? Yeah, well, my thinking on that uh, largely kind of emerges from some stuff that Jay Sakai wrote. He thought that fascism didn't quite have the same sort of popular appeal in the United States. And I think we can simply extrapolate that to Canada as well, because settlerism, the specific ideology of the settler occupies a lot of psychic, social, cultural sort of space that fascism wants to insert itself into. 
and and settlerism because of its association with settler colonialism tends to involve a lot of celebration of the violences of the conquest and of what people tend to call the frontier so i think a lot of american culture is infused with that the drive for territorial expansion the drive for settlement and with all of the horrific violences that the fascists have is already inscribed in the regime of settlerism because settlerism is itself already an ideology of violent dispossessive genocidal territorial expansion so roland if that's the case why do you think or how do you understand the uptick of far-right groups and fascist groups in north america right now right well i think there's a couple of factors that go into it but you know we so we've had this movement now towards this neoliberal globalized capitalism which has disintegrated the the industrial base primary production's been shifted overseas mostly to the global periphery labor is increasingly gigafied it's non-unionized it's precarious there's a lot less stability and security you know less hope of like actually being able to retire on anything but under the obama government even then so before we're even talking about trump there was already a huge growth of militia groups, uh, other far-right organizations, because a lot of white Americans saw the election of a black man undoing what America was, you know, was no longer polite to say that America was a white nation, but that still didn't mean that a lot of white people didn't feel it that way. And so first you have Obama, and you have the economic crisis, and the advance of civil and human rights, and I think all these different instances create a ground where white cishet American and Canadian men feel like now they're under attack. Their jobs are gone. So they want something that's going to bring back what they think is rightfully theirs. So they sort of see the settler project as having failed to some degree and fascism stepping in to, to take on that role. Yeah, and to reassert the violence and to reassert the settler self, that's the fascist program. So a portion of your essay is titled, What Does Fascism Mean to the Indigenous Person? And for folks who haven't read your essay, and I highly encourage them to go do so, can you talk a little bit about what conclusions you came to at that point and if your thinking has changed in the last few years since it came out? Well, I can tell you that my thinking has not really altered all of that much. Um, the conclusions that I drew were that because of the nature of the U.S. and Canada as settler colonies, settler colonial liberal democracy is always already genocidal because the settler colony doesn't just eliminate indigenous people as a historical event in the past, but necessarily has to drive towards the elimination of indigenous people today it's not necessarily you know open frontier homicide the way it was in the past but you have regimes like the american regime of blood quantum eliminating indigenous people as a distinct population canada has its own programs for example the indian act uh the canadian state takes indigenous kids away still practically as soon as they're born sometimes, right? There's more indigenous children in care today in Canada than there ever were 
in the residential school system. Uh, and there are other systems that go on with Métis and Inuit people. Our territories and our sovereignties represent sort of prior and alternative sovereignties to the settler sovereignty. And so we have to be eliminated. We have to be eliminated today. Our rights have to be circumscribed. So that's what I mean when I say that colonial liberal democracy is genocide necessarily. It can't be anything but that. The promise of fascism, though, is an acceleration of that program. Maybe fascism more openly returns to sterilization of indigenous women, which Canada was still doing. But maybe it happens more openly. Maybe it happens at a faster rate. Maybe fascism kills people. Maybe fascism herds people more onto reservations and reserves, right? So I think fascism is a potentiality for the rate of violence to increase, not just government programs of elimination, but actual physical violence inflicted on people with the purpose of exterminating them. So it ends up just becoming a choice, though, between slow genocide or fast genocide. Neither one is preferable, but one of them is worse. And I think the atmosphere of things as they've changed since 2016 in the United States and that necessarily bleeds north into Canada has enabled an environment where violence is much more likely to actually happen. And so to really combat fascism, you have to openly assert both programmatically and in action anti-colonialism. So you write about the fact that there are many segments on the left that have failed to make this connection. Can you talk about what you see as some of the failures of the left vis-a-vis anti-fascism? Well, I think there's been a historically broad tendency to ignore the colonial question or when they do pay attention to it, it's generally sort of waved at with rhetorical gestures. For example, you know, you can do a survey of left-wing Canadian and American organizations, programs for the revolution trademark, where they will say things like, oh, we support the self-determination of indigenous people, but their programs never go any deeper than that. You know, in America, they'll talk about, like, you know, supporting a right to self-determination up to and including independence for, say, the Chicano Nation in the American Southwest or Hawaii or Puerto Rico and explicitly state those territories with their peoples can separate if they want to, but are simultaneously unclear with just some sort of vague support for self-determination for indigenous peoples elsewhere on the continent because they concede those distant areas or border areas and still contain or rather maintain control of most of the continent. You know, it gets really ridiculous in Canada where a lot of groups in their programs, they'll do the same thing where they have like, you know, a vague support for indigenous self-determination but will simultaneously have an explicit support for the right of Quebec to separate. And 
that's even more ridiculous up here in Canada because Quebec itself is a settler colonial entity. It just happens to speak French and to lose out in the colonial war to Britain. Quebec only exists as a French-speaking territory because they colonized, dispossessed, and eliminated the Mohawk and the Algonquin and the Cree and the Inuit and the Abenaki and the Mi'kmaq and a whole host of other indigenous nations. And decolonization from an indigenous perspective necessarily requires the undoing of settler colonial nation states, uh, the U.S., Canada, and Quebec, if we are to treat Quebec as something different. I don't think that decolonization can have those states survive. And uh, Marxists in particular tend to want to simply create a United Socialist States of America or a Federal Workers Republic of Canada or whatever they might want to call it. Maybe they want to merge the two of them together. But I think radically they can't deal with the question of land return. So I think in general this has resulted in a leftist failure to understand settler colonialism. A lot of them will talk about settler colonialism as something that happened in the past and which has unfortunate legacies that live on to today. I think a lot of the left, if I'm being really cynical, effectively just wants to give indigenous people more control over the reservation and maybe make the reservation bigger. You know, um, and I think a lot of the left really wants to just occlude that issue. So you actually end your essay with an appeal to the left, uh, specifically to white people. Um, why, why did you decide to end it that way? Well, I decided to end on that note because I know a lot of white people are also freaked out about fascism. Mm -hmm. And if they want to oppose it, if they want to genuinely get to the roots of fascism and to uh, deal with it, then I think they should throw their lot in with anti-colonial, uh, decolonial, and abolitionist struggle. It's sort of like a plea to, you know, if you actually really want to deal with this, then you should come on this ride with us. You know, generally we know that talking about abolishing whiteness does not mean white genocide or whatever sort of conspiracy theory. We understand that whiteness is a system of power that advantages certain people, and we understand that that should go. We should understand that revolution, uh, serious social change, means that whiteness can't persist. But in the failure to understand settler colonialism, uh, there's a failure to understand the settler as a social position. A similar thing as the need to abolish a structural position but people think when we talk about abolishing the settler that we mean that we're going to come and like start chopping people's heads off or something it activates all of these fears so i sometimes say that it ends up becoming the horseshoe where the white right and the white left start to meet in that you get all this sort of like left-wing reaction from anarchists, from other people who believe that decolonization means the establishment of indigenous ethno-states, as if we're going to ethnically cleanse the territory of white people or something. I think it was Malcolm X that referred to the white man's guilt complex. They know what they've done to the world, and they expect that to be visited back upon them. So I think that's where a lot of it comes from, like psychologically. But you can't talk about a future without settler colonialism and still have settlers, right? 
it's part of the abolition of oppressive social conditions. So I think the left has to really deal with that. That is an ideal place to end this conversation on, Roland. Um, I just want to thank you so much for chatting with us today. Okay, no problem. Thanks for having me on. Light your Hanukkah candles, throw them at a Christmas tree. <laughs> it's time for Skyach. Skoyach! Skoyach! Welcome back to Skoyach, the segment where we give a thumbs up or a thumbs down to things that we like and or dislike. That's a pretty good description. <laughs> Although you. I feel like it misses the soul. <laughs> you know, there's something there's something missing, you know? And David, why don't you talk about the essence underlying our Skoyach segment? It's sometimes kind of a nonsense segment, but I don't, yeah, we'll see how this goes today. Okay, so what Skoyach do you want to give today? What I wanted to do is, because we're already having this conversation on the episode about colonialism mm-hmm. uh, and about fascist movements, Yes, there are two books I want to talk about, sort of giving each of the authors a shkoyach. Okay, David, I'm going to put my nerd glasses on and prepare for your book report. All right, just let me know when you're ready. And Just, uh... just imagine me standing in front of the class. <laughs> okay, and go. So uh, the first book is called Hitler's American Model, The United States and the Making of Nazi Race Law. It's by uh, someone named James Whitman. In fact, we read this book together several months ago. Yeah, we were hoping to interview James <laughs> Whitman for this series, but he would not return our emails uh, or our calls. If you're related to him, tell him to give us a shout. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. But the book is a really impressive piece of historical research. There's just really thorough sourcing of all these primary documents. David, that's like top on your list of things you want in life. (laughs) Just a really thoroughly (laughs) researched book about fascism. Yeah. Uh, I was really blown away by it. They have transcripts of meetings where the Nazis are planning the Nuremberg laws, and they're talking about racist laws in the United States. Yeah, it was pretty jarring. Um, it's, It's a fairly short read as well. You could probably read it over the weekend, depending on your reading habits. But David, there was so much to get out of the book. Was there anything that you took away as being really important that you want to share with folks? I mean, the one story that really stuck with me that I didn't know about before I read this book is that there was actually a trip. It was almost like a delegation of Nazis who came to the United States to study the American approach to segregation and the racist legal system. Yeah, I mean, there was even one part in the book where there's a debate between different Nazi officials in the early 30s. And several of them who lost out uh, later in the decade, but several of them are talking about how they can't go as far as the American race laws had gone. Mm -hmm. They're like, whoa, 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 this is too intense for us. We need a more civilized approach. Yeah. And I mean, I I think it's important to say that this is in a phase before the final solution was implemented uh, in a different time for the Nazi party. Yeah. I I think we talked about in this episode, if we didn't, it's worth saying that there's quite a bit of writing by Hitler about his admiration for American and Canadian colonialism and genocide here. But I think there's far less of an understanding of how much the Nazis looked to America's race law. Uh, So my first Goya goes to uh, James Whitman's book, Hitler's American Model. Okay, so you've given one book report. Would you like to briefly deliver the second one? Uh, Yeah, so my second Goya is to a book called Bring the War Home by Kathleen Ballou. And the book covers a period of white power organizing, uh, roughly starting with the Vietnam War and ending in the 90s. And it was during this period that this movement shifted from defending and supporting the American government to actually arming themselves to overthrow it. Yeah, I mean, this was the second book that we read together. (laughs) Um, But 
what was the takeaway that you want to share with this podcast audience? Um, well, there's a lot of them, uh, but the main one I think that's relevant for the conversation we're having on this episode is that Kathleen Ballou, who wrote the book, when she was looking back at the history of white power organizing, she noticed a trend where every time that soldiers would come home from wars abroad, there would be a spike in white power organizing. And so in thinking through the ways that colonialism and imperialism overseas can filter back into the host society, this seems actually like an important part of that. I think that's a great thesis to share with the class, David. Well, thanks. I don't know who's uh, marking this book report, but I guess that's the end. <laughs> okay. And there's something I'd like to tack on here, David, if, if you will oblige me. Oh, please. Um, does that make sense? Oblige me? Yeah. Okay. Um, I think that given the focus on the far right these days... Mm -hmm. We don't always situate it in its historical context. Yeah. And and the Blue Book does a really, really, really good job of giving you the foundation upon which these movements are built. And uh, I would highly suggest that folks check it out. I think that's uh, very well said. Thank you, David. So on that very academic note, mm -hmm. what do you have for us today, Sam? All right. I have a serious square, but I'm going to sandwich our two serious squares with a more lighthearted one, if that's uh, okay with you. Terrific news. Um, the first is to a 1990 situational comedy, The Nanny. <laughs> okay. What, what brought this about? <laughs> so I've never seen it before. Oh, really? Uh, yes. I, I've never seen it before. That I have, seems impossible. I actually didn't watch a lot of TV growing oh, up. that's true. Yeah. So I had a vague sense of who Fran Drescher and The Nanny was. I probably hadn't even seen a clip before. Like, it was really the oh, first wow. time I had dived into it. David, it is phenomenal. It is pretty good. It holds up. I feel like it gave a portrait of 80s or early 90s Jewish life that I'm happy was kind of encapsulated on that program. I mean, doesn't it take place in like an incredibly wealthy home? Oh, yeah, yeah. But uh, Fran Drescher's character and her mom kind of are moving in and out of it. And it's showing this aspiration towards that upper class life, but not being part of it. They're from Queens. It's a whole thing. Mm, so do you know that Fran Drescher is, is, is essentially a socialist? I did not know that at all. Yeah, here, hold on one second. Here, check out this tweet. Without an exploited working class, capitalism can't exist. We are all pawns of the ruling class. Yo, shout out Fran Drescher. The bad news is that she's kind of a Zionist too. It happens. Uh, so I guess, you know, none of your faves are perfect. <laughs> but yeah, that's I, I'm, I'm so happy to hear this, David. Um, Fran seems great. And I hope that season two through six or seven are as good as season one is. Sam, I don't want to break your heart, so I won't tell you anything. Okay, great. All right. So moving along to my second and more important square. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to give an anti square from the absolute bottom of my heart to the American prison system. Uh, it's seconded. Particularly to the prison system in New York State. So, Julio Munzakim, a former Black Panther who's been inside for almost 50 years, was denied parole for the 12th time since the early 2000s. Yeah. So, he'll have to wait another 12 months for another hearing. Yeah. So, you know, on, on a previous episode of the show, we talked about Sophia Bakari. Sophia co-founded the Jericho movement with Jalil Muntakim, mm. but he's he's been inside for, yeah, like you were saying, almost 50 years. Yeah, and, and he's been experiencing harassment at all levels of government. Uh, he's been treated tremendously unfairly, being forced to jump through hoops for his politics. And so I just want to urge people to show public support for Jalil to particularly get in touch with Governor Cuomo's office. We're going to put some more information in the show notes, but tweet at him, write him, call his office. Uh, there's a free Jaleel website, as well as a Jericho movement, which we will also put in the show notes. There's action plans there. Please check out these websites, read more about his case, and support him publicly. 
yeah, it would be great if anyone listening could help take action. Uh, also, if you're looking to learn more about Jaleel, he's written a number of books. Uh, we Are Our Own Liberators, and I think the newer one's Escaping the Prism. Uh, you can find them both on Chris Blabadeb's website. We'll have links to that in the show notes too. So just to double down, read up about Jules case if you need to, and please support his campaign to get out of jail. So what did we learn from all this, Sam? You uh, give a decent book report. That's a very flattering uh, review. And that folks should watch The Nanny. But more importantly. Support Jaleel yeah. and uh, abolish all prisons. So that's the end of our show for today. Episode 45. I looked on Wikipedia and couldn't find anything really interesting with the number 45, other than the fact that um, it's a 45 RPM record. Powerful argument against math. <laughs> I couldn't agree more, David. Um, thanks, as usual, for listening. If you are looking to order some Hanukkah candles that will also be contributing toward anti-colonial movements, this is the perfect time to order from Narrow Bridge Candles, and we'll have a link in the show notes. And we'll probably stop talking about this after this episode comes out. But Certainly stop talking about this <laughs> after this episode comes out. We have the um, funding drive up at patreon.com slash podcast. If you can give a little bit, that would be greatly appreciated. If you have any friends or relatives who are lefties and have tons of money, um, it'd be great if they could give us a chunk of change. Or direct them towards social movements doing uh, much more important work. All right, David. But in this hypothetical scenario, I am envisioning that this kind of person would have enough money to give two important social movements and then a little bit to us. Uh, sorry, I wasn't totally in the scene. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, we'd really appreciate any support just listening to the show, letting us know what you think, uh, and telling people about it is an, a huge way of supporting the project. So thank you so much for listening. Long live the war on Christmas. And more episodes soon. Trafe Podcast is Sam Bick and David Zinman. A huge thanks to CKUT 90.3 FM, where we record this podcast under the shadow of the giant cross of secularism on occupied Ganyagahaga territory. Thanks, as always, to Sack Syndrome and So-Called for the music you heard in the episode, and to everybody who helps make Trafe Podcast happen. And as always, you can follow us on the social medias at Trafe, T-R-E-Y-F, on Twitter, on Facebook, and on Instagram. Please send any comments, suggestions, or hate mail to TrafePodcast at gmail.com. More episodes soon. The plural of social media is also social media. I know, it's a joke. What's the joke? Calling it social medias. That's very funny. You're going to have to live with it, David.